0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello.
1: And I'm Nick Rercraut.
0: And today is an exciting day because we are kicking off the third installment of our Oscar contender series. This is, I think, sort of our signature event that we do every year where we do a deep dive into all 23 categories.
1: Yeah, I love going through the categories, and it really helps me doing all the research, finding out why these people are nominated why these films are showing up in these categories and why also you know we have those snubs we have those surprises because when we dive into them you learn so many new things that you just really don't imagine when you watch a movie and that's part of what they're trying to accomplish is making everything look so seamless and if not all the time that's what they are doing so actually picking apart the elements makes it a lot of fun
0: Yeah, I completely agree. It gives me a greater appreciation for not only the craft and art of filmmaking, but also the nominees every year. I feel like when we're finished with this series, by the time we actually sit down to watch the Oscars, I feel like I have such a deep understanding of who these people are and what went into every single category. So today we will be starting with some below the line categories it's sort of, honestly, like the beginning of Tar. We're starting at the end, right? <laughs> <laughs> that reverse role order of the credits. So we have original song, original score, sound, film editing, and visual effects.
1: So starting right off with original song, with this category, we have a few guilds and precursors that may predict the category, just things to look at before the Oscars come about. So Some of these ceremonies include the Society of Composers and Lyricists, the Hollywood Music and Media Awards, the Golden Globes, the Grammys even, like we saw last year with No Time to Die. So of the HMMA winners and of the nominees, Applause won in the Independent Film category and Lift Me Up won in the Feature Film category, while at the Globes, Natu Natu won. And that was nominated at the HMMA Awards. But like I mentioned on the last pod, those were in November. I think we saw a very different slate of winners and nominees there. So the nominees themselves, we have Applause from Tell It Like a Woman, Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick, Lift Me Up from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Not To Not To from RRR, and This Is A Life from Everything Everywhere All At Once.
0: I know we joke about the original song category often and how these names sometimes of songs sound like they would be on motivational posters or at some sort of spiritual retreat. (laughs) But overall, what do you think of this list?
1: That brings up a good point of what we'll talk about during these episodes, because at the end of each category, we will each list what our write-in vote would be and then who do we think should win. And with that write and vote and your question, I think it's a fine list. It does kind of encapsulate the year of songs because we have some mixed from earlier in the year and also some from within the movies themselves. We like to distinguish that fact when that comes about because those songs find a way into the narrative of the movie itself. And for the most part, we have a lot of big stars performing these. Were they well-embraced by audiences when they first came out? I don't think so, especially for Lift Me Up and Hold My Hand. I made a comment to a friend recently about Top Gun and the song, and I was like, I, th- I think I'm coming around to it, like seeing it mm-hmm. in the movie a second time and understanding its power of where it is, and they're like, oh, that is not how the gays felt when it came out. Like <laughs> This is not like... <laughs> But I think overall, it's a decent list, maybe not a full list of something I would listen to all the time. But I think I understand the audience and why these are here. How do you feel about them?
0: Yeah, I think that this collection is really indicative of what the music branch tends to go for. Sort of like you said, you have a song from a movie that has really caught on, I think, and captured the hearts of voters and viewers of RRR and Not To Not To. You have the two big songs by major pop stars with Hold My Hand and Lift Me Up. You have the nice surprise of This Is a Life. And then you have something like Applause, which is written by Diane Warren. And every year we reserve a spot for Diane Warren. I think sometimes her songs are incredibly catchy and work very well in this category. And other times They just feel like those typical songs that only this branch would recognize and you would never listen to in your everyday life.
1: Well, I guess since you ended off there, let's go into that song a little bit more. So Diane Warren wrote the music and the lyrics for this song. This is her 14th nomination, and she just won an honorary Oscar this past year. So I feel like for us, having seen her on these lists, Year after year after year, this was an easy one to put in. The song itself, so the movie is comprised of seven short films directed by women. And the song is used during one of the segments called Sharing a Ride, directed by Lena Yadav. So this is in the movie. Has any of the public seen this movie? No, but we will continue to try until the Oscars, hoping this gets a release at some point.
0: Yes, so this movie premiered at the Taormina Film Festival in Italy, and it had to have a qualifying run somewhere, so I think a select few individuals have seen the film, Um, maybe ventured to a theater to see it in New York or LA, but we heard from a listener, and I did see online that it is playing at the UN headquarters here in March, and we might have to figure out a way to go see that, because... (laughs) Not only do we need to see the movie, but it would be a great story for the show. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. (laughs) But yeah, and the song itself is performed by Sophia Carson, who I have actually never seen any of her films. She's Mm -hmm. in a Netflix movie called Purple Hearts. She was in Descendants, and she was in a Disney Channel series called Austin and Allie. But I'm sure she'll be performing at the Oscars, so we will hear it there. What do you think of this song?
1: So there is a video of the song, but I was hoping that it would feature part of the video from the movie itself. Because when I listen to the song alone, I don't really feel much. I don't understand Mm -hmm. the story. I can tell it's inspirational, but I wanted more. Do you like it?
0: I don't love the song. But I will say that it unfortunately is very catchy in the sense that I was just, I was walking around the other day and had that like, (laughs) give yourself some applause, you deserve it line on a loop in my head. I was like, I need to listen to something else. Why is this here right now? Yeah, good words of affirmation, I suppose. But I'm going to use this opportunity to plug Diane Warren's next song, Gonna Be You, because I saw 80 for Brady yesterday and... That song works so well with the movie and just Dolly Parton's voice coming in. It is sort of an end credit song, but also it plays as the film is ending. So I think it's safe to say we'll be talking about Diane Warren again next year for a better
1: song. (laughs) It would be pretty cool to see all of them on stage and then bring up the actresses themselves.
0: Yeah, I agree. That would be too cool. I mean, they're all legends, Mm -hmm. the performers of the song and the actresses from the movie. Okay, next we have Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick. Nominated here, we have Lady Gaga and Blood Pop, who both did the music and lyrics. This is Blood Pop's first nomination. Lady Gaga at the Oscars, she has four nominations total. One is in Best Actress. Um, So this is her third nomination in Original Song. And she has a win for Shallow, which I wonder if my reaction to Hold My Hand, which was sort of tepid at first I think for me I wanted more from this song Mm -hmm. I wonder if I was holding her to too high of a standard because Shallow is so good and honestly an iconic song from a movie now and she has so many good songs in A Star Is Born and I just generally love her music outside of everything she does for films so I think that might be partially why I didn't respond as positively to Hold My Hand at first.
1: Yeah, I didn't either, and this was a long-awaited song, and once I heard it, this was before the movie came out, I was a little let down, I mean, we we get these ballads from Gaga, and next we'll talk about Rihanna, and I was like, hmm, okay, but the way it's used in the movie, again on rewatch, I noticed the theme of the song plays throughout the movie, which I think is really smart, and then it actually starts before the end credits, A lot of times the credits start and we hear these nominated songs, but when Pete and Penny go up in that plane is when the music starts, and I think that was so smart to kind of pull at our heartstrings one last time before the movie ends, and then we get it, and it almost ends before the credits, so I love how it's actually used and Definitely had more of an impact once I had heard the song and understood what it was doing for the movie.
0: I completely agree with how it's used in the movie because it does channel these like 80s power ballads that were popular in the era of the first Top Gun. And I think that the movie does such a good job of manipulating us emotionally. And I've mentioned before that I loved how it manipulated me. So when that song just soars and you hear her voice at the end, it really works, I think, with the emotional high notes of the film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Next up, we have Lift Me Up from Black Panther Wakanda Forever. The music was done by Thames. This is their first nomination. Rihanna, also her first nom. Rain Kugler. This is his first nomination in the category, second overall. And Ludwig Goranson. This is his second nomination, and he has previously won for the score for Black Panther. And then the lyrics were done by Thames and Ryan Coogler. You saw this movie pretty recently, so how do you like the song and how it's used there?
0: I think that it works, I think, as a tribute to Chadwick Boseman. I also think that Rihanna's vocals are great in the song, I've really missed her music. This is actually her first single since Love on the Brain in 2016. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> so it has been a minute. She's been busy with Fenty in all of her other endeavors. But I yeah, so I think her return, her vocals just sound like so rich and deep here mm-hmm. in the song. I love that. I think the song is a little bit sleepy, but I was so happy to have Rihanna back. I don't know if it's the best song in the movie, so sometimes we have that come up where there are multiple original songs in a movie or different covers of songs in a movie, and that is definitely the case with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever.
1: Do you have another favorite?
0: My favorite song from the movie was actually the cover of No Woman, No Cry by Thames that was used in the trailer. I really liked that. I thought that was great. And Rihanna also had a song called Born Again in the movie. The soundtrack's available on Spotify if you want to listen to it, along with the score.
1: Yeah, I was just really happy to get Oscar-nominated Rihanna. And I agree. I mean, even though it's an in-credit song, I think it does hold a lot of power with what the film is doing. It kind of sums up what they bring about in the beginning of having this tribute to Chadwick. So I did like the vocals. I like it in the film. I definitely think it's worth revisiting, at least from time to time, to listen to Rihanna.
0: Next up, we have Natu Natu from RRR, music by M.M. Kiravani and lyrics by Chandra Bose. This song is so catchy, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the way that I think it's used in the movie is so much fun. I finally saw RRR.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Tell us tell us about your experience.
0: So I don't tend to love maximalist Action epics that blend a lot of genres together mm-hmm. that might come up for another movie we talk about this year, but they're just a little bit harder for me and not typically my thing. But I thought there was a lot to love about this movie, and I absolutely understand why it has caught on with so many people and why people respond so positively to this movie. But Natu to, Natu to in the dance sequence, absolutely my favorite part.
1: I was watching the video. On YouTube and was just like beaming with Mm -hmm. how fun it was. And like, this is definitely the most upbeat song we have in the category. And I think that plays well also in, you know, replaying it in your head and having it catch on. And I think this is interesting because it's the only song we have in a different language. So we don't really understand the words or feel that uplifting nature through the lyrics, but you feel the energy and it's so infectious. And I think that's why it's captured a lot of viewers Mm -hmm. as well and felt like this steamroller in the category.
0: Yeah. It's also the first song in an Indian film to be nominated for this category, which is really cool. So it's making history there. And something I read about the movie, because after I watched it, I did go down a little bit of a deep dive just reading about the production and... About the filming of it. And Natu Natu was shot in August 2021 in Ukraine. The scene itself was actually filmed at the Marinsky Palace, which is the Ukraine presidential palace in Kiev. And this was right before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy?
1: So, our last nominee now we have This is a Life from Everything Everywhere All at Once. The music was done by Ryan Lott. This is his first nomination. David Byrne, this is his second nomination. He previously won for original score for The Last Emperor. And then Mitsuki, this is their first nomination. The lyrics were done by Ryan Lott and David Byrne. What do you think about this song? This is also an end credit song.
0: Yeah, I love this song. So just my personal music taste here. I love David Byrne. You know, I I love New Wave and indie alternative music. But then Mitski, I love my indie sad girls, <laughs> and her lyrics are really melodramatic and visceral, and I feel like Mitski and David Byrne are such a complementary pair. Having these two really strong songwriters and performers in the indie space in the alternative style also pairs really well with San Lux's score. So I I think the song is used really well, even though it is an end credit song. And the tone of the song works really well as this final coda to the movie.
1: Yeah, I do love how their voices mesh so well together. And I love that in this song, they wanted to bring this catharsis around in these end credits. So I love what it's doing and why it's here.
0: Okay. And to wrap up, what would your write and vote be?
1: One of my favorites that I would write in is La Es Una, sung by Carol G in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I love it. <laughs> so catchy. It's an end credit song, but it's just so much fun after you go through this ride. I mean, I would definitely go see this movie again.
0: It is so much fun. So I was going to joke with you and say it would be on my way for Marry Me because we just... <laughs> Talked about that, but my serious pick is New Body Roomba from White Noise. I love that Mm -hmm. song. It was actually on my 2022 Spotify Wrapped because I listened to it so much. It's an end credit song, but the end credits of that movie are just delightful. As we're in this bright, colorful Mm -hmm. supermarket, and we have this dark but upbeat LCD sound system song. Yeah, I love it.
1: I love the scene. I love the song. I was. Really rooting for it, I think this and This Is A Life really go together well. So I'm, maybe it was like the sixth pick. And what do you think should win?
0: Ugh, I'm so torn because I think I'll be excited if two of the songs win. I mean, seeing Lady Gaga on stage is always exciting. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to complain about that if that happens. But I'm sort of torn between two. I think I have to go with This Is A Life just because. Personally, I love the song more, and I think what David Byrne and Mitski did with the song, I just personally enjoy more, but I also would be excited for Not To Not To.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna say Not To Not To. I think this is the most fun and really a different kind of song that we usually get in this category.
0: I can't wait to see the performance of Not To Not To at the show.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely.
0: Okay, our next category, we have Original Score. For guilds and precursors here, we have the Society of Composers and Lyricists, the Hollywood Music and Media Awards. So they are similar to the original song precursors. We also do get a Golden Globe winner here as well. So the guilds didn't match with Oscar last year. At the HMMAs, they divide up their awards based on genre. So Nope won in the horror category, Avatar the Way of Water won in fantasy, the Woman King won in Feature, and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio won in Animated. None of these movies were nominated for Oscars, which is sort of wild. Uh, that yeah. At the Golden Globes, though, which is a precursor, Justin Hurwitz won for Babylon. We will get to him. He is the king of the Golden Globes because he has four.
1: Four for four, yep.
0: Our nominees here, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Babylon, The Banshees of Inisharan. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, and The Fablemans. So jumping right into our first nominee, we have All Quiet on the Western Front. Our composer is Volker Bertelman. This is his second nomination, actually. He was nominated for Lion under his stage name Hauschka with Dustin O'Halloran. What did you think of the score for All Quiet on the Western Front?
1: I love the score, It builds upon the film's themes and motifs of juxtaposing nature and war really well. And that's what Volker talks a lot about in interviews and the way that when he was sampling the audio, everyone thought of Led Zeppelin and it gives us this great metallic rock gritty quality and sound that really pervades the entire film and why it works really well. What did you think about it?
0: so one of my favorite bands is Led Zeppelin and he did this interview with Hans Zimmer and they talked about this I love what you said about nature and the juxtaposition there I like how he thought about war sounds differently with the score because I think it would be easy to make this score very bombastic with you know all of the sounds of the gunfire and the explosions and everything but that's not as prominent in the score as you might think. Mm -hmm. Because when I think of war scores, I think of things that are very loud and abrasive. And I think this one is strong and powerful in other ways. And seeing that Bertelman had an interview with Zimmer was interesting because I did think a lot of Zimmer when I listened to this score. It feels like it could be something that would inspire him for one of his future projects, which I think is really cool. But yeah, I think overall, this was a really good addition to the category. I feel like the way that the score is used in concert with the editing and the sound work, and even the visual imagery is really beautiful. beautiful. It's one that I've caught myself returning to, to listen to. It's rather intense and a bit down (laughs) because it's a war film, (laughs) but it's a good listen.
1: Do you have a favorite track from the film?
0: I think my favorite track is Rain and Night. It actually reminded me of something that would have been used in a Kubrick film. It has just this sense of darkness to it that I really like. And yeah, it I don't know. It's moving as well. It's scary. It feels like something that could be in a horror movie. I really liked it.
1: Love that. Mine is Last Combat, which has these notes that they're talking about, but also this like blaring noise which kind of rattles you but it's also this like foreboding presence and I love again how it's used in the movie next up we have Babylon the composer Justin Hurwitz this is his second Oscar nomination in the score category he previously won for La La Land for score and original song for City of Stars He scored all of Damien Chazelle's films. He also has two Grammys, four Golden Globes, three Critics' Choice Awards, and one BAFTA. So he is beloved, to say the least. I know you love this score, and you can't wait for him to win. Tell me a little bit more about why.
0: Oh my god, yeah, I I love this score. I think it has the quality that Damien Chazelle wanted the drugs in this movie to have, (laughs) (laughs) personally. (laughs) I think it, it really hooks you in in a way that I cannot stop listening to it. I think that the score is aggressive and exhilarating, bold. It's everything that I think the movie itself wants to be. Sometimes it is that way, but I think the score itself is a better distillation of the period, but also of what they're going for with creating this story. Justin Hurwitz, he talked about wanting to incorporate things that were from the period, right? Using the instruments that were around in the period, but in ways that felt modern. So, having instruments that would have been in a jazz band in the 20s and 30s, that felt very important to creating the world. But also, he was inspired by genres of music that are popular today, like house music, Hmm. which he wanted you, I think, to feel that a high that you get when you're listening to certain types of dance music. And I think that the ways that it turns the La La Land score inside out are fascinating. I see La La Land and Babylon as an A-side, B-side sort of situation mm-hmm. where... Babylon as a film feels like it is very self-conscious of La La Land and of what people said about La La Land. Yeah, I think it's the score of the year. I think it just, it sticks with you. It gets stuck in your head. There are a lot of sounds that I haven't heard before on screen, and I really like that. And for what track I like the most, I have gone back and forth because Voodoo Mama, I think, is like the song from the movie, but I really love Call Me Manny. I like how it's used in the film. You can tell that Hurwitz, Chazelle, and Tom Cross, the editor, worked really well together to have the editing and the score and what's happening on screen all work together well in sync. Because a lot is happening. And the score Mm -hmm. really, I think the score reflects that.
1: This to me is the catchiest score of the nominees. I have trouble with this movie and some parts of the soundtrack, but What you said about the orchestra, I totally felt in the movie itself, and you feel these instruments embodying the chaos that's going on, but then it's also modernizing the sound, which helps it be a little bit more relatable. So I do love how he maneuvers the sound to play with time and the timeline itself. I don't love the songs with lyrics. I skip all of those.
0: Yeah, some of those I skip. Singing in the rain makes me sad because I just think of the the beautiful the 50s. The actual movie. Singing in the rain, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I would say my favorite songs. They need to open the Oscars with Welcome. Mm-hmm. It's just it would be so much fun. I love Coke Room. I love Voodoo Mama. I love Call Me Manny.
0: Okay, our next nominee. We have Carter Burwell for The Banshees of Inisharan. This is his third nomination, which feels crazy. I feel like he should have six or seven nominations mm-hmm. by now, but his previous nominations were for Carol and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. He is a frequent collaborator of both Martin McDonough and the Cohen Brothers. So chances are, if you're watching a Cohen Brothers movie and you like the score, it is thanks to Carter Burwell. What do you think of the score? This is frankly one of my favorites. I mm-hmm. really love the score.
1: I love it too, and I love how well it plays with your emotions, because there are so many mysterious qualities happening, and that is embodied by the score so, so well. You know, it's spooky, it's wistful, it's foreboding, but then also at other times, it's really meditative, and it has this kind of playful quality to it. I love that Burwell himself was inspired by cartoons and fairy tales. So those fantasy elements, you know, he has harps and the celesta, the flute happening. But it was also interesting how McDonough told him that he hated old world Irish film music, and he wanted to stay away from that, which I think is smart because it creates this lasting feeling. And my favorite track is the end credit song. It's called "The Mystery of Inisheerin." You have these harmonious chords that come out of nowhere. It feels like you don't get them in the movie, but I think when you hear it on the score, you feel that maybe there's some peace after what comes of these two characters and their relationship. So it begs to question like what comes after the movie ends, and I love that it continues to make you think.
0: Ooh, I love that too. And I talked a little bit about this when we reviewed the movie. I love how the score feels so much a part of that setting of In and in making McDonough's tale feel like a tale, like a folk tale or a fairy tale. It is a very Irish story, obviously, but it feels like a story that has magic in it, right? You have Mrs. McCormick and you have these elements that make it feel like a fairy tale. So I love that Burwell Mm -hmm. was inspired by those. And I read in an interview that he did with Esther Zuckerman that Colin Farrell's character seemed like a Disney character to him. I thought that was very funny in his inspiration and that he was reading the Grimm's fairy tales to his Mm -hmm. kids. And he was reading that Cinderella, where in the original Cinderella, it is very different from the Disney tale and the stepsisters cut off their toes so that they can fit into the slippers to be with the prince. Mm -hmm. So the shoes will fit. And you know, growing up reading those stories, too, they have that staying power over you, sometimes that the Disney ones don't because they're filled with a whimsy and a comedy to them, but also this a, a darkness in them. And that's exactly what this story does, too. So when he read that story, and then he thought about, oh, you know, there's something similar there to Colm cutting off his fingers, because Parik mm, yeah. doesn't get it. But that's the thing about a movie like this and a story like a fairy tale is they have that power over you that lingers. And I think this score has that quality too. It stays with you. And that's why my favorite track is Night Falls on In a Sharon. And mm-hmm. I think that's because you start to, I think, feel that darkness or the impending darkness fall over the film.
1: I think overall, this score is best for studying or putting on in the background I know we're talking about a lot of its dark qualities but it is just really pensive too so I would recommend listening to it for me I love when the darker themes and this vengeful quality start in the first finger and Burwell adds this quality to the sound and the music where we feel a turn in the story and I I think it's really smart Definitely. Next up, we have Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Son Lux composed the music. This is their first nomination. What do you think of this score?
0: I think the score is very surprising and works very well with the movie because the movie itself has so many genres and themes that it's trying to tackle with its characters and capturing the multiverse. So you need a score, I think, that feels really different and modern and can genre bend itself? I love that they used composers that are sort of non-traditional here to create this this score to make it feel like very unexpected and very playful too. It has mm-hmm. humor in it as well, just like the movie does. So it was one that I hadn't really listened to like I had with Banshees and Babylon, for instance, but is one that I've started listening to since its nomination.
1: There are a few aspects of the score that I really, really love, and I'm really happy that it got nominated. One is hearing these Chinese melodies really in the family's themes and when they're showcasing the parent and the mother-daughter relationships, but they use these paigu drums and gongs, and I love that it's not all the time throughout the entire score, and there is a reason for that. It's because they wanted to stay true to the immigrant experience. By using this traditional Chinese music more sparingly. But specifically, I mean the fanny pack is fun. It adds this action dance beat that I really like.
0: Yeah, it's very ambitious, like the rest of the movie is. Mm -hmm. My favorite track from the score is This Is How I Fight. But this song is the song that I think we will talk about again when we talk about Kiwi Kwan's Oscar scene. And Mm. His best moments in the movie because this song comes at a very pivotal moment in the film for his character, and it's when we also see that homage to In the Mood for Love.
1: Amazing, that's probably why I have that as my favorite track, too.
0: <laughs> also,
1: <laughs> You're Living Your Worst You and In Another Life. I also like those.
0: Our last nominee we have John Williams for The Fablemans, this is his 53rd nomination. <laughs>
1: Wild. Amazing.
0: (laughs) Crazy. So he has won for Fiddler on the Roof, Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., and Schindler's List. Nothing short of iconic. (laughs) Those scores. Jaws, I mean, it changed everything Mm -hmm. with two notes.
1: Yeah, we wouldn't have the holiday without Jaws.
0: Thank you for getting my reference there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And E.T. we talked about earlier this year. Just, yeah, iconic music overall. I don't know if I would necessarily call the Fableman score iconic, but I think it works really well in the movie.
0: I agree with that. This score I thought was really beautiful when I watched the film itself, but it isn't maybe as strong or overwhelming as some of the other scores that we got this year. I think because the score itself is rather short. There are only 12 songs. It's about 31 minutes. But I like how... It does feel like signature Williams, and I really thought it was beautiful how the score incorporated Bach and Beethoven and these classic piano concertos that Mitzi plays throughout the film. So I thought it was really beautiful in that way, and it is a nomination. I do think that just makes sense because, one, they love John Williams, but also he's 90 years old, and this is Jeez. his final score for a Spielberg <sighs> well, movie. Sad what a career. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. I mean, I I think of all the nominees, this is definitely the most soothing and classical of the ones that we have. So do you have a favorite track?
0: Yeah, my favorite track is actually The Journey Begins. This one is at the very end of the score, the very end of the film, and it actually incorporates Haydn, Sonata 48. And I think it's, it's a really beautiful blend of Williams' score and existing classical music. I also, if I had to pick a second one, it would be Reflections.
1: I also love The Journey Begins. It also has the moment from the end of the film. So it has like that really playful music from when he's leaving mm-hmm. on the Warner Brothers lot, which I love. And then it kind of fades into the classical music again. So it gives you a big snapshot of what Williams is doing throughout the entire film.
0: Mm-hmm. And what would your write in vote be?
1: Mine would be Michael Giacchino's score from The Batman loved that score. And we'll talk about that movie a little bit more with sound and how that all got incorporated. What would your writing vote be?
0: My writing vote would be for Michael Abels for Nope. I love this score so much. I love how it incorporates sci-fi and horror themes, but also music that will be found in classic Westerns. It really plays with a lot of different genres and You just feel it. It's what makes the movie so emotional for me and moving by the end. Like when Kiki Palmer's character is riding away on that motorcycle, Mm -hmm. I just tears well in my eyes every time thinking about what these siblings have gone through and it's just movie magic. I love it.
1: And what do you think should win?
0: I think Justin Hurwitz should win another Oscar for his score for Babylon. I think it's the most ambitious score of the year and it's one that I will return to. I think for many years as a favorite film score. What about you?
1: I'm going to go with Everything Everywhere All at Once. I think the score surprised me the most. I love how it's used. And I think the musicians, the composers were really inventive with adapting the material and trying to find a way to incorporate not only their specific experience and traditional music, but also in highlighting some of the darker elements and the family's tensions really well through the music. Next category, we have sound. Some of our precursors here, we have the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Awards. That ceremony will be February 26th. And then the Cinema Audio Society, that ceremony is in a couple weeks on February 15th. And last year, the guilds matched with Oscar with Dune winning. So our nominees here, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Batman, Elvis, and Top Gun Maverick. Getting right into All Quiet on the Western Front, our team here, we have Victor Prossel, Frank Cruz, Marcus Stemmler, Lars Ginzel, and Stefan Korte. They are all first-time nominees. Again, I think we can talk about the juxtaposition of nature in battle, but the main thing that stuck out for me was how they used, quote, metal screeches and animal noises. As these sounds from the battle. And again, I think that combines those two things really, really well. Because as a viewer, it's hard to distinguish sometimes when they're in these trenches and the fields of like, where does nature begin? Where is the humanity of these iron monsters, these huge tanks, and the gunfire? And, you know, in other moments, you find this stillness and it's very eerie. Because you're waiting for something else to happen, for another battle to come about.
0: Yeah, I think that the juxtaposition, like you said, of the sound and the silence is disturbing because it also gets at how Paul feels as a character. And I do think the sound work here, it's not just about booms and war noises. It is about the characters and how the feelings of war become real very suddenly And I like how with the nature, right, like there are no leaves on the trees, but you hear leaves Mm -hmm. and how that disorients you and makes you feel for the character and how disoriented they must feel in war. But also I liked how Frank Cruz, the supervising sound editor, he said that he was really inspired by the letters of soldiers during the war because there aren't any sound recordings, no real audio recordings from that time period that they could use to be inspired by. So they were inspired by the written word, and that was really, really beautiful and creative. Next we have Avatar The Way of Water. We have a big team here. We have Julian Howorth, who is the sound mixer. This is his first nomination. Gwendolyn Yates Whittle, who is the supervising sound editor. This is her third nomination. Dick Bernstein, also a supervising sound editor. This is his first nomination, but he won the Tech Achievement Award in 1989. We have Christopher Boyce. He's the re-recording mixer, supervising sound editor, and sound designer. This is his 15th nomination, and he has previous wins for Titanic, Pearl Harbor, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and King Kong. We have Gary Summers, who is a re-recording mixer. This is his 12th nomination. He has won for Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Jurassic Park, Titanic and Saving Private Ryan. And we have Michael Hedges, who's a re recording mixer. This is his fifth nomination, and he has two wins for Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and King Kong. All of those nominations and wins, I think it really, really shows in the sound work here. Avatar The Way of Water is obviously a huge technical achievement, but it again, like All Quiet on the Western Front, feels really connected to the characters and to the places. In order for this movie to work, the environments themselves have to feel real. So when you are in the trees, hearing the sounds of this place, and like you can feel the characters moving through this place in a realistic way, and when they go to the water (laughs) and you experience that, those sounds just feel so real, even though so much of it is this fantasy. And, you know, having them understand and think about how sounds change underwater. So they talked specifically, too, about like how metal sounds underwater is going to be different than how it sounds above water and how they made sure those sounds were so clear to them Mm -hmm. and how they captured those sounds underwater, I think was really impressive.
1: Yeah, not only submerging speakers, but surrounding the set with speakers to give this 360 feel Gwendolyn talked about, you know, really streamlining the viewer's experience and not noticing the sound work, which I think for a movie like this is extremely challenging to do because they have the music, the effects, the diegetic yelling, the screaming, the battles, the water itself. Like there's so much happening, Mm -hmm. yet you still want to follow a character at one time. Next up, we have The Batman, the team here. We have Stuart Wilson, the sound mixer. He has seven nominations and previously won for 1917. William Files, who is the re-recording mixer and supervising sound editor. This is his first nomination. Douglas Murray, the supervising sound editor, also his first nomination. And Andy Nelson, who is doubly nominated for Elvis. We'll mention him again, but he has 23 nominations and has previously won for Saving Private Ryan and Les Miserables, he is the re-recording mixer. How do you feel about the Batman sound work?
0: I think the Batman sound work is excellent. We've had so many Batman movies and we know this character and the sounds that we associate with stories like this, but I feel like they did a great job of capturing the sound of the Batmobile. And just another detail that I really liked is when you can actually hear little subtleties in the sound work with the costumes. So like how mm-hmm. they use the suit and Zoe Kravitz, her costume for Catwoman, you can hear the leather and the different movements within the costumes. I love when when you can have parts of the work that are loud, like the Batmobile, and that sort of knock you out when you're experiencing an action film in a the theater. But then you also have the more delicate sounds that add to the characters and how they move through the world.
1: Hearing how the team like snuck around the Warner Brothers lot and recorded fully. Some of other really big takeaways. Obviously, Batman is this big undertaking, but they ended up watching more 70s movies. So they really took from the French Connection, Coppola and the Godfather, the conversation. And I love that they talk about the sonic point of view. So yeah, you have these loud, intense sequences that also use visual effects and lots of different types of sounds, but it really comes down to the character and how they wanted the viewer to connect with them personally. So a lot of the time it's Batman, but the diegetic sounds would change a lot. So like when he sees Selena getting out of the car, everything really quiets down and you you hear her theme playing And then it ends up not being her. So it's really interesting to get into that psyche of who this Batman is, especially this newer Rob Pattinson version. And then another thing that I really loved, we'll get to another song later that is going to blow your mind, but there was inspiration behind a video of You Smile by Justin Bieber. (laughs) So there's a video on YouTube (laughs) where it's slowed down 800 times. And it has this like really ethereal quality to it. And it really struck the team when they were trying to find sounds for the Batmobile. In the end, they really liked the sound of a bottle rocket. And they ended up slowing that down, like in the Justin Bieber song. And then they used that as the rocket turbine sound at the very end. So combining that with this 1980 Ford Bronco V8 engine that they really loved finding that gritty sound. But then they also used like a Jeep driving in reverse. Just crazy to think of all of the research and experimenting and recording that they go through Mm -hmm. to just make one sound from this movie, let alone, you know, Paul Dano's breaths and editing those or, you know, the grittiness of New York itself and turning that into Gotham.
0: I love too, with speaking of Paul Dano, how he wanted his breath work and his dialogue, he had that fed back to him in the way that it would sound in the movie so that he could dive Jeez. even deeper into this character and understand how the other people in the film or the audience might be seeing or perceiving this character. Mm-hmm.
1: talking about a character since we won't talk about him again you know we talk about butler and the voice and elvis but here rob really had to channel this new voice and he couldn't scream he couldn't speak loudly it was more of like an under the breath kind of voice to batman that he gave and when they recorded adr so coming back way later after production had ended it actually took him a long time to get that voice back and to make it sound like it used to because it was such Mm. a transformation
0: but it's not the same type of transformation little segue to elvis because (laughs) austin just can't quit the voice
1: (laughs) exactly
0: (laughs) so our next nominee here we have elvis our team we have david lee this is his third nomination he's a sound recordist and he previously won for the matrix Wayne Pashley, who's a re-recording mixer, sound designer, and supervising sound editor, this is his first nomination. Andy Nelson, who you mentioned when talking about The Batman, this is his 24th nomination. And Michael Keller, who's a re-recording mixer, this is his first nomination. What do you think of the sound work in Elvis? Elvis.
1: This is a movie about sound and music and a powerhouse, Elvis himself, obviously. So I think it's interesting how they weave together, and we'll get into this in other technical categories too, but of using old footage, the original tracks, and using Butler singing Elvis. It was interesting looking at the breakdown and hearing about it, how... Basically for the 50s it was all Austin Butler singing and then in the 60s we have the original Elvis Masters with Austin filling in some of those gaps where the audio wasn't so great. And then into the 70s where they continued to weave them together especially in Vegas. Another fact that I really loved was in how they found the scream queens and the sound of them amongst these 500 female extras that they had. So looking back they were trying to find sounds of screaming but a lot of that came with horror films and sound effects there and that's not the scream you want to hear when
0: mm-hmm. you know you have
1: this like mm-hmm. sexual tension this passion for music so they recorded a lot of those newer sounds in post and I think that's one component on screen of you know really feeling this love for Elvis for Austin's Elvis and feeling what these women are feeling.
0: The key thing here is the way that they use Austin's voice and Elvis's voice. And one of the things that I loved learning was that they used a lot of microphones that were period correct that Elvis would have used at the time to capture his sound. And they did tests with Austin using a microphone called the Electro Voice RE-15, which is the same microphone that Elvis used during his time in Vegas, and they had a recording of Elvis from 1972, and they layered Austin's vocals into it, and they had two samples, one that was just Elvis from 72, and one that was a combination of Elvis and Austin, and they did tests with their friends to see if they could tell Mm. the difference. And a lot of people couldn't correctly pick that one of the tracks was just Elvis because the sound team had done such a good job. Another thing that I like about the sound work in the movie is how Elvis is a Lerman movie. So there's a lot (laughs) going on here, but in the quieter moments when the camera focuses on what Elvis is going through, you feel that juxtaposition with the screams and that sound of a live performance and how addicting that can be but also how crushing that can be and how that can further affect your mental health and your loneliness and ultimately like this is a film that I think tries its best to get into what Elvis was going through as a person Mm -hmm. over time
1: and our final nominee we have Top Gun Maverick the team here we have Mark Weingarten This is his fifth nomination and previously won for Dunkirk. He is the production sound mixer. James H. Mather, the sound designer, supervising sound editor. He was previously nominated for Belfast. Al Nelson, he is the sound designer, supervising sound editor. This is his first nomination. Chris Burden, this is his second nomination. He's the re-recording mixer. And then Mark Taylor, who is the re-recording mixer. This is his fifth nomination and previously won for 1917. So how do you feel about the sound work from Top Gun Maverick?
0: I think it's incredibly impressive. This was something that completely wowed me when I first saw the movie. One of the reasons why this film is such an emotional experience is because of the sound work, because you feel like you were up in the air with those pilots, Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is because of... You know, how this sound team recorded dialogue when they were in flight. I thought that that was really cool. So there's dialogue between pilots on different planes, there's dialogue between a plane and someone who is on the ground. There's just, there's so much happening there, but you feel it every time.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the main challenge or expectation, I guess, for this movie is that one, Tom Cruise had a lot of say as a producer, as well.
0: Of course he did.
1: (laughs) But it was him, Joseph Kaczynski, and the team working together, and all of the in-flight dialogue was recorded. There was no ADR, no looping, which is the re-recording after the production ends. So they had to figure out how to put these mics in the planes, and the recording devices in the planes, as well. So they have mics in the masks, but then, you know, when they take the masks off, like that sound changes. So they put other mics inside their survival vests. Another challenge was, okay, we're getting the equipment into the cockpit. What happens if, you know, you have to eject? So they had to make sure that the equipment would eject safely, along with the pilots. (laughs) Oh
0: my god. (laughs) It just
1: seconds, you know, how real all of this filming was. And, you know, the actual equipment in the cockpits, they found a way for the actors to start the video and the sound by themselves by remote control. So they have six cameras in each jet, four looking at the actors, and two looking forward over their shoulders. And the sensors, the lens, and the camera were all separate from each other. So again, just all these components broken down.
0: It's overwhelming, I think, sometimes when you think about how much work goes into making you feel connected to these characters. And I read in Variety that early on in filming, so that scene when Maverick is showing the pilots that the mission can be completed and he flies it himself Mm -hmm. under the time limit, that was also one of the first sequences that they filmed because Tom Cruise (laughs) wanted to show the actors that it could be done. (laughs) And they actually did fly the version of the mission safely with Tom Cruise in the plane with someone from the Navy. And they captured all of those sounds, the breathing, and Mm -hmm. what effect that had on his body. So that, and then turned up the sound mix so that you felt totally in sync with Maverick as he was going through that. I really love that. I need to watch the movie again.
1: And the fact (laughs) that they were actually like, 15 feet from either the mountains or the ground is just like totally insane.
0: Oh my god. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So what would your write and vote be?
0: So my write and vote is actually something that was on the shortlist. And it's a documentary. It is Moon Age Daydream. When you think of musicians who created a wall of sound and created brand new sounds, David Bowie is certainly one of those musicians. And what this sound crew did here to create this beautiful documentary about his specific sound and the creativity of his sound, I think was really stunning. And putting footage of David Bowie and his music together and creating this brand new soundscape, I thought was really, really incredible work. And Mm -hmm. It would have been a cool nomination.
1: Mine would be—I'm going to say—Bones and All. Um, I think excellent. Some of the gore. What really stands out is, you know, when she bites the finger off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the crunch, exactly. Yeah.
1: It's, yeah. you know, scaring the audience and making you feel uneasy, but also in quieter moments, leaning into the natural aspects of their relationship mm-hmm. and, and making these characters human. I think it's smart and the way it finds its way as Marin is finding out more about herself with Lee.
0: I want to know the Foley for Bones and All. I want to know what they found, <laughs> what sounds they collected. <laughs> and what do you think should win?
1: I'm going to say Top Gun Maverick. Again, I think what they accomplished while filming is just phenomenal. And I think when you're watching the movie, you don't think about any of this. It, it feels very real. And the fact that all of the filmmakers, all of the crew really wanted to make sure it was done that way as well as just unimaginable, really.
0: I would say the same thing. I think Top Gun Maverick is the perfect winner for this category. I think that everything that went into creating those sounds in Top Gun Maverick, I really think it's why the film works in the emotional way that it does. Okay, next we have editing. This is a major category at the Oscars. For the guilds here, we have the Ace Eddie Awards. They didn't match with Oscar this year, but if you are looking at predicting, editing and sound typically match up. So last year we had Dune win editing and sound at the Oscars. So these could pair up this year. We'll see. Our nominees here we have the Banshees of Inisharan, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick. Let's get right into The Banshees of Inna Sharon. The editor here, we have Michael E.G. Nielsen. This is his second nomination. He won for Sound of Metal. What do you think of the editing in Banshees?
1: What Nielsen talks about a lot in interviews is how he needed to balance the drama and the comedy within the same scene and shift between them fluidly so that you can feel all of those different emotions at the same time, really. And then in other moments, you know, he would kind of hold back to make the viewer engage more and to investigate who these characters are, what they're doing, why they're doing them, which I think is really smart because, you know, all the performances are nominated. So having them not only share the scene, but have to highlight themselves and hearing that Nielsen was a part of that and conveying to the audience, the character's emotions and their motivations in the film, too. I think that I didn't really look at it that way when I watched the movie, but breaking it down, you definitely start to feel his impact within shots.
0: Yeah, I think that Nielsen here, he isn't afraid of the idea that less is more sometimes. And I think that he really knows how to deliberately construct this Pace and work with McDonough on the tone of the film, like you mentioned, going from comedy to drama and having lightness and darkness infused in the story. I think that sometimes people talk about some nominees in this category as nominees because they're really strong in Best Picture. But I don't think it's just because it's a strong picture contender. I think that Nielsen's work as an editor is really delicate, but also very potent. I think that the way that he captures the animals, and I also love how he edits the film to show how the conflict between Powrick and Colm changes throughout the movie, and they become more distant. And you can feel this through long takes and through the ways that the film is edited.
1: Our next nominee, we have Elvis, the editors here, Matt Villa, and Jonathan Redmond, And this is both of their first nominations. I think the big thing for Elvis for me was maybe before it came out, we heard about this four-hour cut. And we were like, oh my god, (laughs) that's a lot. Mm -hmm. So I think what the editors talk about too is refining Baz Luhrmann's maximalist shooting and trying to figure out what scenes to take out to cut it back an hour and a half. I mean, that's a whole movie. So each time... That they edited it, they had to watch it because it became a new film every time. So, what do you think about the editing for Elvis?
0: The thing about this film that I, I think you almost have to admire is that the editing and the direction make sure that you know right away what type of film is in store. It does not let you off the hook, especially at the beginning. So, there are a lot of montages in this film. And I think that this branch and often what we see in editing at the Oscars is that more is more and sometimes more editing equals best editing. Mm -hmm. But I do think there is genuinely good work here. I think especially when you think about the collaboration between the editors and the sound team, they are creating the story that is about a character and a real person who is Beloved by so many people and you have to get those scenes right and know what you want to treat like a montage, like the mm-hmm. opening of the film yeah. where you're getting cuts between different parts of Elvis's timeline, but you're seeing Tom Hanks as Tom Parker but then knowing when to slow it down. So when do you show an entire performance and when is that important? So like the 68 TV special and his performance from 1972, they knew they had to get those in full to make the experience feel authentic for fans of Elvis. But then also they had to cover a lot of time here because in conversations with Lerman, he told the editors, we're doing the entire life story here. So that was a major challenge for them, I think, to keep the film moving and everything that they needed to, Mm story-wise.
1: Which gets to this interesting idea of playing with time in this Tarian way of, you know, when to slow, (laughs) exactly, when to slow things down, when to elongate the time frame, and it's really in part to showcase, one, Elvis, and two, the relationship between Elvis and Colonel Parker, So that's why in the beginning we get the split screen and a lot of these flashy shots. But then also of Elvis and these performances, you know, they have the stock footage of real Elvis and sprinkling that into this new Elvis. They did this in a really smart way because a lot of the time they show the back of his head and they don't show his face because they really didn't want to confuse the audience of like, wait, this is Elvis or this is Austin Butler now, like, which one are we getting? And I think it does that in a really successful way, because you are kind of looking really closely trying to imagine who it is. And in the end, you see the real Elvis because that is his last performance that we got.
0: Okay, our next nominee, we have everything everywhere all at once. Our editor here is Paul Rogers, and it is his first nomination. What did you think of the editing here?
1: I really like the editing here. And yes, there are parts where, like, there's that sequence of Evelyn going through every multiverse in like three seconds, but they really wanted to emphasize or balance the emotional, the intimate moments. And the biggest hurdle for them in doing this was making us feel the Evelyn joy relationship at the very beginning to make sure there was a big emotional payoff at the very end. So Paul said that, you know, that was a harder aspect to edit than some of the action sequences. The fact that I really love that Daniels made Paul watch Holy Motors to Amazing. <laughs> remind him that, one, a movie can break rules at any moment, which that really does. I love Holy Motors. But also that anything can happen as long as the audience trusts the film. And I think with an absurdist movie like this we're traveling between dimensions and multiverses. Like you have to trust what you're seeing in a sense. And I think, again, it really works here. I'm going to bring up my second song, which I wanted to send you last night, but I didn't want it to ruin. I don't know if you've read this either. Oh, no. Was the Daniels have directed a music video that Paul Rogers also edited. And the absurdist quality there, it totally fits. But it's Lil John's. Turn down for what? Stop. Yes.
0: <laughs> they should play "Turn Down for What" if they go to the stage. They really at should. The Oscars. They really
1: should. I mean, the video itself is crazy, but I need to send it to you because it is really funny. Like I watched this in a coffee shop, and I was like, "What is happening?"
0: <laughs> I'm also imagining just someone noticing at a coffee shop that you're watching this music video, and you're like, "No, no, it's prep for a serious discussion." I promise. (laughs) I think that the editing in this movie, it's what Hank Corwin wants to achieve in Adam McKay films. (laughs) Because there is, right, there's a lot of editing, but I think that knowing that Paul Rogers cares about the character so much, and like what you said, I read that too, about how he was playing with that opening scene so many times because he wanted to make sure that that relationship was strong between that connection between mother and daughter that's so important for the rest of the film but the original cut of the movie was two hours and 50 minutes and it had everything in it so literally everything everywhere all at once Um, it had he said it had every joke and it went as far as it could and then he had to go back in several times and try to figure out what the right balance was and where to keep specific scenes and shots like a little bit longer because a lot of times what he said too was that people would in test screenings would react to certain characters and he would realize oh this isn't because of their performance or anything that an actor did it was because of the way that he had cut the scene Mm -hmm. maybe cut an actor's like cut something a little bit too early on a reaction or let it go a little bit too long so I think really playing with that was important and also another fact that I thought was Interesting was that he let the choreography continue in wide shots and he only cut to close ups at particularly important moments where a character would be like making a decision or um, it was particularly consequential for the scene or for the character. So I, I like how he talked about balancing that because you do have to capture a lot of that action but also making it very emotional in close ups.
1: Mm-hmm. Next up, we have Tar. The editor is Monica Willey. This is her first nomination.
0: I love the editing in Tar so much. I think it is perfect, and I'm so happy that it is here. This is what I would describe as invisible editing. It is not editing that is flashy or that you can see and feel in a way that is overwhelming to you as a viewer, but it is so decisive and necessary to communicating Lydia Tarr's control as a character throughout the film. So starting the film, for instance, with a shot of her on a phone being filmed and then going to Black and to the credits, and then we get that opening montage of Lydia at the New Yorker Festival talking to Adam Gopnik, and interspersed, we have shots of Records on the floor and suits being made for her, and we get to see the luxury of her world, and we get to feel her power in a way that is overwhelming. I think. And I like that what Monica Willie does here with the editing is that you can feel that she uses the opening credits to give us a space to breathe and to focus before everything is thrown at us about this character, and we go into this world of classical music that Todd Field has brilliantly constructed in his screenplay. Mm -hmm. A lot of names are thrown at us, and we have to take it all in very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then going from that montage to almost immediately, the oneer at Juilliard when she's guest lecturing, it is brilliant to see how suddenly we are with that character in full and the camera feels almost afraid of her as it tracks her at a distance but you can feel her power and her unwillingness to let up on an argument she's already won (laughs) (laughs) she has so much power over the student and she was very involved in rehearsals and her assistant was too especially with this scene making sure that it would all work out in the editing room. And they also captured footage from the students' phones that they would use later on in the movie when her downfall starts Mm -hmm. to come. So I think having to balance all of that material, also the work with the sound is just brilliant. My favorite, favorite cut of the entire year is the cut from Lydia gently playing Mahler's Fifth on her piano and then it cutting to that shot of her conducting mm-hmm. it's just this boom
1: it's amazing that impact I mean I was surprised that Monica said that Todd didn't want that shot in the movie initially and I was like oh my oh god, my god. Yeah. just <laughs> one of my favorites of the year so Yeah, what I really liked about the editing and what Monica's described about it is that they wanted to mirror Lydia's exacting nature with these sharp cuts and, you know, having these longer takes sometimes to feel the reality and to just hear her speak. Mm -hmm. I mean, to showcase Kate Blanchett, because that early Adam Gopnik scene and then obviously the oner of Juilliard is just those are just phenomenal not only lines, but the way the camera moves, too. And the way they play with the lyricism of time. So while this is probably the least editing we get, I love this as a choice for a nominee.
0: I'm so happy that it's here. And quickly, Monica Willie, she has also collaborated with Michael Haneke many times before, including more and The Piano Teacher. It would be a brilliant but brutal double feature with Tar oh boy and the Isabelle pair character in that so we'll keep that on the back burner for another time (laughs) and our last nominee here we have Top Gun Maverick the editor is Eddie Hamilton this is his first nomination he will also be the editor for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Parts 1 and 2 so he's worked with Tom Cruise quite a bit but what do you think of the editing in Top Gun Maverick
1: The editing goes hand in hand with the sound. I think the editing is also phenomenal. They had 813 total hours of footage. So yeah, like getting all of that flying footage and figuring out what to use, just insane. But while I love all of those sequences, I think it's also smart how Eddie Hamilton really wanted to showcase the personal. And that really came out with the scene between Pete and Iceman. And in feeling the power of Iceman's words as he types on screen and, you know, either showing them again or having a close up of his face instead. I think that really got to me on second watch and having seen the original watching Maverick and Iceman fight, but also reconcile and, you know, seeing him show up again and what he's going through is really hard. But how do you feel about the editing here? What components do you like from it?
0: I think the editing here is really strong, and often editors have this Herculean task of editing the movie, and then they don't get the credit that sometimes goes to the director or to the cinematographer for creating what we see visually, when in reality, it's the editor putting in so many hours (laughs) to make us feel the way that we do in these scenes. And I like what you said about the characters, I think that the choices to cut together Exterior shots of the aircraft with close-ups of the pilots inside the aircraft as they're fighting, and the balance of that is really tricky, I think, if you want to make sure that the scene itself has the maximum intended emotional impact, and I feel like it always does, and the editing here is why so many people went to go see this movie so many times Mm -hmm. in theaters because it is so concerned with making you feel for these characters and you do feel connected to them while you're watching them fly. And one thing that I read that I just want to mention about our editor, our dear editor here, is that he spent over a year editing the Mm dogfight sequence. Over a year. Like You just think about how much time it actually takes to... Give us five minutes on screen.
1: Yeah, there are two sequences that I really love. This is one of them. Yeah, from 15 minutes and editing that down to four minutes, spending a year on that would just send me to an insane asylum. But the other scene is when Pete does the mission himself and we get a lot of edits here, but a lot of it is bringing it back to base with these new recruits reacting to watching the screen. And it's really because you're rooting against the John Hamm character. So I think this is so smart because we're cheering along with them and holding our breath along with the recruits as we edit back and forth from Pete flying. It just ratchets up the intensity. And that's exactly what they wanted to do. And they wanted to hold true for Top Gun fans.
0: So what would your write-in vote be?
1: My serious write-in vote here would be for All Quiet on the Western Front. I think it works well with the sound. Again, we edit back to these characters and the humanity within the war itself. But I think a fun answer here would be Barbarian and in how they (laughs) flip the concept of a movie pretty much and what you're introduced to when, like finding the Justin Long character so far into the movie, especially after editing from being in that basement and those hallways and then having to wait to figure out what's happening. I That was just a fun editing experience.
0: I love that. My write-in vote would be for Decision to Leave, the Park Chan-wook film. He used his editor, Kim Sang-bum here, who has worked with him on a number of his films before, And I think that the use of POV shots here, how they play with shots of particular objects as clues, but also I think really do make you feel the relationship between our central characters and in building this mystery, this romance, a thriller out. I think the editing here is pretty brilliant and I would have loved to have seen it included in the five.
1: I love that too. So what do you think should win?
0: In very predictable me fashion, I'm going to say that Monica Willie should win for Tar. I think her work here is just, it's incredible. And yes, like Fields built out a lot of this into the screenplay, but her decision making here of how to use the editing and when to let a scene breathe, when to use these quick cuts and how it all comes back to the meaning of who Lydia Tar is as a character this movie is also paced, I think, very brilliantly, and I love the way it uses the sound too. So yeah, I think I think it's the achievement in editing of the year for me.
1: My vote goes to Paul Rogers and turned Down for what? <laughs> I guess I am going to be voting for that on Oscar night.
0: <laughs> oh my god, I love it.
1: And our final category for today, we'll be talking about visual effects. The precursors and Guild we have here is the Visual Effects Society. This ceremony is on February 15th. Last year, Dune won four at the Guild, and this matched with the Oscar. Our nominees here, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Batman, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Top Gun Maverick. Getting into All Quiet on the Western Front, we have a group of all first-time nominees, The team is Frank Petzold, Victor Mueller, Marcus Frank, and Kamal Jafar. How do you feel about the visual effects in this movie?
0: First, I highly recommend looking at the before and after shots of the visual effects in this movie. They're really impressive just to see how important visual effects were to creating the wartime environments here, what the trenches look like, what the battlefields look like, the fire, the fog, all of those elements coming in from CG. So definitely check out those, but also how they were inspired by their principal photography to create CG. So not all of what you see is visual effects or CG models. You're seeing a lot of of our real actors on sets that they built can use CG not to create a completely new world, but to add to the existing environment. And I think it is really successful in making it feel violent. And like, it has absolutely no end to it at all. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and I loved how they really wanted to make everything historically accurate. They ended up scanning a train and a steam engine in a museum that was actually used in the war to exchange prisoners. And they used that for models in the film incredible. I love with those videos that you're talking about you get to really see the differences and sometimes it's so hard to even see the differences in what they're doing because it's so intricate but the way they layer the fog to make it one both endless and to mask the airfield that they're shooting on but then also at the same time claustrophobic and there were a lot of practical effects you know talking about these nominees we'll talk about I think many times filmmakers want to use practical effects because they look more real, especially the explosions in this movie particularly. And then how, like, yes, there are green screens, but it's more for compounding on background extras. It's not like an entire set piece or visual effects in that way, which I think we get into sometimes with other films that rely on CG.
0: Speaking of... (laughs) Our next nominee is Avatar The Way of Water. This set a new record at the Visual Effects Society for nominations with 14. The team here, we have Joe Letteri, who has been nominated 11 times and has won four times for Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, King Kong, and Avatar. We have Richard Bannum. This is his second nomination. He won for Avatar. We have Eric Sandin, this is his third nomination, and Daniel Barrett, this is his fourth nomination. There are 3,240 VFX shots in this movie, 98% of the total shots in the film. 2,225 of those feature water. Truly the way of water. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of the visual effects in this movie?
1: I love the visual effects. Reading about what this team did, I was just so in awe, even, you know, after Mm -hmm. seeing the movie and just experiencing everything. But the nominations Mm -hmm. at the category, I think, speak to why it's so inventive and what Cameron has been working on for years and years is so revolutionary, too. So among the nominations include those for Kiri, the Sigourney Weaver character, the Metcaena Village, the Reef, the Sea Dragon, elements such as fire and destruction, the water simulations, and then lighting with the water integration and forest destruction, and then also practical effects in a wave pool. So there are just so many components, again, that they had to animate and imagine and make feel real. Again, there are so many facts that just blew me away. One is that in starting in pre-production... They tried filming dry for wet. So that's where like you film things on land and then you add water in visual effects. And Cameron was basically like, I don't even want to see it. We're not doing that. So they filmed wet for wet. So they're filming in the water, which is why you're hearing, you know, like Kate Winslet holding her breath underwater for seven minutes. These actors really had to perform Mm -hmm. everything underwater, which is crazy.
0: It really is. And there
1: was one scene where they had 26 people underwater at one time. Sigourney Weaver outlasting a stunt diver. Things I just never would imagine reading about.
0: I love hearing this about two of my favorite actresses. (laughs) That they were just like, no, we, we can hold our breath better than record holders and stunt divers the whole idea of performance capture and motion capture here is stunning the team like having to create characters that match the like live action performances mm-hmm. they pretty much invented new technology to create this film and to make the underwater world feel i mean it was unlike anything i've ever experienced in a film before. And yeah, they built new cameras and new systems for reading facial expressions mm-hmm. through AI. That was mind blowing to me. And Joe Letary, of course, it's worth noting that he designed the motion capture of Gollum. He's sort of a legend in the, in the motion capture space. So I think having him here on the team was really important and it showed. But yeah, it's it's a behemoth production and it paid off. Like you said, the timing, spending so much time not making these sacrifices that I think you would make if it you had to shoot a film really quickly, it it made all the difference.
1: Next we have the Batman. The team here, Dan Lemon, he has five nominations and one win for the jungle book. Russell Earl, who has six nominations. Anders Langlands has three, and Dominic Tui, who has four nominations and one win for 1917. So compared to Avatar's 3,000-plus visual effect shots, we have a tenth of that here at 320. Still wild, and that whole car chase yeah. scene we get, there's so much happening there, but again, that number is just so much smaller.
0: It is smaller, but I still think you feel the impact of the visual effects in the movie because they had to create Matt Reeves' new vision for what this noir-inspired, 70s-inspired Gotham would feel like. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed, I think, learning about how the VFX team collaborated with the cinematographer, Greg Fraser, who wanted to, I think, really show... You mentioned those movies earlier, like The French Connection. And lighting and shadows are so important to those 70s new Hollywood movies. And I think that the way that the VFX team worked with Fraser to create these new cityscapes and to play with the light by creating these backgrounds, I think that had to be seamless to make this world feel even halfway like those.
1: No, I think it's great work. And reading about what they had done research on. The team even studied the motion of bat colonies, which again, the depth to all of the work here is fascinating.
0: Our next nominee here, we have Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. The team here, we have Jeffrey Bauman. This is his first nomination. Craig Hammock. This is his second nomination. Our Christopher White, his third nomination. And Dan Sudik. This is his 13th nomination. What did you think of the visual effects in Black Panther Wakanda Forever?
1: So Black Panther uses 2200 visual effect shots. There's a lot going on. They mixed wet for wet and dry for wet. And the dry for wet was shot at 48 frames per second instead of the normal 24. So that gave this like slow motion effect when you were underwater. So I definitely think you feel that. And with the water, which was different than Avatar, something that I didn't really read about is how they dealt with the clarity a lot of the time. And I think that's why you feel like it's a bit darker there too, as well. They studied turbidity and marine snow to give it a natural blur. So I thought that was really interesting. Hmm.
0: One thing I think that in comparison to other other MCU movies is that Ryan Coogler told this team that he did want to capture a fair amount of what he could practically. So while there are a lot of visual effects in the movie, right, 90%, he still wanted to capture what they could in practical and have the visual effects interact with that. I think that's probably the difference in having someone like Ryan Coogler directing your movie and just mm-hmm. cranking out a comic book movie. I think it's hard, unfortunately, because we have Avatar with that water and how that water looks. And it feels like an unfair comparison, but because they're in the same category and so much takes place underwater, it's hard, I think, for this film to measure up to that just because of the time that they had and the time that they had to develop that technology. Whereas, here, they had to, I think, be innovative in different ways to capture the underwater world. But one of the scenes in the movie that best, like, showcased the visual effects for me was when all of a sudden the water just comes flooding into Wakanda, into the streets and through the buildings. And I thought that that work was probably the strongest in the movie, like stronger than the fully underwater scenes.
1: And our final nominee, Top Gun Maverick. The team here, we have Ryan Tudhope, Seth Hill, and Brian Litson. This is all their first nomination. And Scott R. Fisher, this is his third nomination and he previously won two Oscars for Interstellar and Tenet. So Top Gun has 2,400 visual effects shots. Pretty comparable to some of the other big numbers from our list here, but what did you like about the visual effects here?
0: Well, an interesting thing about the visual effects for Top Gun Maverick is that a lot of the marketing around this film was actually about how the film didn't use a lot of visual effects. So I think it's it's sort of interesting that there are more visual effects than we maybe thought before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like that can seem a little shady, but it's also I feel like Tom Cruise wanting everything to be and seem real. And a lot of it was real, but... I think that the visual effects, like where they're used, are really impressive. So, you know, they added some explosions, they added some additional planes where they needed to, and then just some additional background environments. So I feel like the, the visual effects in the film are strong, and they enhance the world of the film, but I don't understand why the people involved in the rollout of this movie didn't want us to think that there were visual effects.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they actually kept the team from campaigning. Which is just...
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, so shocking. I kind of get it if, you know, they want this movie to feel realistic and to focus on the flying Mm -hmm. and for people not to think that that's a visual effect. Like, I get that. But there's also a lot of shooting and smoke and missiles. So what would your write-in vote be for visual effects?
0: My write-in vote would be for The Northman. I think everyone should go and Google before and after visual effects from The Northman and just look at what this team put together, because there are a lot of visual effects that are used. Yes, it is like very heavy on the VFX, but just seeing how they used visual effects to create these backgrounds, it's so specific to Robert Eggers' vision of what this period was like, but it also has these mystical, magical elements to it that use visual effects to add to that. It's really, really beautiful work, and I wish it could have been recognized.
1: Yeah, I love that pick. Mine would be for Nope, which was on the shortlist. The two main elements are Jean Jacket and Gordy. And I think the way they're used, while there may be a fewer number of total visual effect shots, I think their impact is just so important for the story and what Peele is saying.
0: I love Nope. I wish I got many nominations instead of zero. (laughs) But what do you think should win?
1: We're ending on the easiest answer of the day, and I think that is Avatar the Way of Water.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It really is the easiest answer, and I think it will be one of the easiest winners of the night. Mm -hmm. Well, we did it. That was our first episode in our Contender series for this year. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be looking into our next batch of Below the Line or Technical Categories talking about makeup and hairstyling, costume design, production design, and cinematography.
1: I love talking about these categories, and I can't wait to talk about these other crafts next week. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Pod. We also have bonus content at patreon.com slash OscarWild.
0: Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.